Welcome to Rich Divine Social Work Practice Podcast. I am Rich and I am a social worker. This podcast is about practice related issues, self development, and transformation. It will give you the knowledge, ideas, and practical tools for being an effective social worker, supporting you with assessment skills, direct work, dealing with conflict, and other related issues, and importantly, helping you make a positive difference in the lives of children and families. Today, I'm super excited, although you would never guess that from the tone of my voice, because I tend to have quite a monotone voice, but I am super excited as this is going to be the, this is the first episode. And I want to give a quick shout out to Vicky from Social Work Sorted who has been an inspiration and has given me some much needed advice and guidance to get this up and running. And I thought I would use this first episode as a way to introduce and share a little bit about myself. I've been a social worker for 12 years. I qualified in 2010. I started my social work journey quite young because I left sixth form, ended up doing a program called the Princess Trust, went to college for two years and then started my degree, began practicing in 2010 when I was 22, I believe. And I spent seven years working in long-term child protection teams across two different local authorities. And I learned a vast amount in those roles. And I was in the middle of doing my master's in attachment studies. And I really didn't want to move into management, but I was struggling with the demands and pressures of case management alongside the studying. And so fortunately there was a role, it was a community-based parenting assessor, which I jumped at the opportunity to do because it allowed me to continue working with children and families, which I'm really passionate about but meant that I didn't have the responsibilities and the demands and the excessive workload, I think, that comes along with being a case-holding social worker. More recently, I've become a consultant social worker, which means that I still do my parenting assessments, but that also I have some responsibility for workforce development. So I wanted to, in relation to my journey into social work, and uh, a few years back, I wrote a blog called Drug Step for My Decision to Be a Social Worker. And I'm going to read some, some parts of that blog as a way of sharing my journey into this work. And also, I think it will touch on some of the themes that we'll be exploring in the blog, not in the blog, sorry, in the podcast such as issues relating to effective social work practice, self-development and transformation. So I begin by reading a, a little excerpt from my dad's diary, and then I'll provide a little bit of a context about where that, when, that was, when that was written and what was going on for him. So he writes... Woke up feeling very scared, was very emotional and anxious for over one year. Then I remembered I had a can of beer, drank that, and it receded my fears long enough to get to the chemist to pick up my Valium. Went back to bed. 
So that was the perspective my, of my dad at one point during my childhood. He died when I was 16 years old after he spent most of my adolescence using drugs and alcohol, or he was in rehabilitation treatment centers. When he was in rehab, my dad wrote about his life, which I now realize would have been an exercise to help him make sense of his experiences. It's something that I've actually done quite a lot, and I think it's a really powerful tool for helping people make sense of their experiences, particularly if they've been through traumatic difficulties. There's some really interesting research by a guy called James Pennybaker, who's looked at the therapeutic benefits of writing about experiences. In any event, he, he wrote about his life when he was in rehab. And I read this after he died and he wrote that I was the first child of his born into sobriety and I'm the youngest of five. And I think he was probably quite proud of that. And in his mid thirties and probably for the first time in his adult life, well, not probably, I know it was the first time in his adult life, he achieved sobriety. <laughs> And he went to college, he then went to university and worked as a social worker in child protection for a few years. Fortunately for me, that provided some stability during my former years. However, when I was eight or nine, he resigned from work on health, health grounds. And part of that was tied to working excessively long hours. And then he quickly relapsed into drug and alcohol use. And after his death, when, when I was 16 years old, my mum told me that he'd become a social worker so he could prevent what had happened to him from happening to others. When my dad was a child, he was removed from his parents' care, separated from his siblings and placed into different foster homes and residential homes. In one of the homes that he was placed in, he was abused by those that were employed to care for him. And so he didn't want others to have the type of experiences that he'd had. And when I heard this from my mum, this idea that she, that he wanted to stop what had happened to him from ha to happening to others, I decided at that point that I would become a social worker and subsequently I enrolled in college. And I thought to myself at the time, I want to be able to finish off what he was, he wasn't able to. In my at training and throughout my post-qualifying years when I was asked, oh, why did you become a social worker? It's a very common question. I would often tell people that I wanted to work with children and families in a way that made a positive difference. And that is true, but it's also somewhat superficial and a slightly socially acceptable, sir. And I think there's an element where my desire to present as a selfless and virtuous social work social worker, conceals the complexity and awareness to myself and others of the more candid, self-serving reasons to do the work I do. I think Goffman talks about this idea that we tend to conceal or underplay the activities, facts and motives, which are incompatible with the idealized versions of ourselves. So I only learned about this in 2012. So. A couple of years after I'd been qualified 
and I was in a conference, community care conference, and there was a psychotherapist and he was explaining that many of us in the helpful profession are often attempting to rescue our childhood selves vicariously through helping others. And suddenly what my mum had told me about my dad's reasoning for becoming a social worker several years prior now had new meaning. I realized that my dad was attempting to rescue his childhood self. It had also occurred to me that I was attempting to rescue my dad's childhood self on his behalf. And I think that's probably because when my dad relapsed into drugs and alcohol when he was nine or ten years old, he became physically and emotionally less available to me. And I experienced that as a form of rejection. My childhood self experienced that as a form of rejection. And when I look back now, cognitively, I know that it was related to the drugs and alcohol, but that's not necessarily how my childhood self experienced it on an emotional level. I often say that my dad died a thousand times, psychologically speaking, before he actually died. One of the ways that I'd learned to cope with that was to shut emotionally and then try and please or make him a little bit happier because that brought out a better version of him. So over the years, I, I realized that there were connections between my childhood and my motivation to be a social worker. And I would say that my understanding has been massively aided by my learning of attachment theory, in particular, Patricia Crittenden's dynamic maturational model. And that was the model that helped me to realize that I'd developed this coping strategy, what's referred to in the DMM as a self-protective strategy to handle the experiences that were afforded to me in, in, my, in my childhood. And I'll just return to, to my dad's life from his diary, because he described the period in which he relapsed during my middle childhood. He writes, after I left my job, I took one pill and within a short period, I was a fully fledged alky and druggy. My son, Richard, saw some of the old behavior that he had never experienced before. And now I feel this has contaminated him. This disgusts me. So as I just mentioned, when I was a child, I just experienced him as increasingly unavailable. And simultaneous to my dad's substance misuse, my mum also became depressed and developed chronic fatigue syndrome. And I wouldn't have had language or the knowledge at the time, but through learning the dynamic maturational model, I have come to understand that instinctively and without awareness, I'd learned ways to adapt to the parents that I had during this period of my childhood. And that was to, what I had to do was to deal with the rejection, which was unbearably painful and to utilize what limited availability they had to attend to me. I dampened down my dependency needs and then suppressed and hid feelings of sadness or anger having learned that my parents just weren't going to be able to support me with those feelings. The rule I established was don't express feelings. Furthermore, I sought to please and placate my unwell man because when I did this, I elicited a more favorable reaction. 
And I established a second rule, constantly think about and anticipate my mum's needs. And so these two rules combined led to the development of a largely unconscious strategy. One, minimizing my own needs, and two, anticipating and meeting the needs of others. So in attachment terms, this is called a compulsive caregiving strategy. Now, the time my dad died when I was 16, I was unable to acknowledge, let alone process any negative feelings about the experience and dismissed away the significance of his death. Interestingly, at the same time, and I don't think coincidentally, I developed asthma. I think my understanding about the relationship of asthma in the context of trauma was facilitated by a book called When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate. And during my late adolescence and into my adulthood, I grew familiar with a sense of offensive sense of inadequacy and worthlessness that derived from having my emotions unintentionally yet persistently ignored and devalued by my mum and dad. And so my child, I couldn't separate the rejection of feelings. I couldn't separate the rejection of my feelings from the rejection of my, of my fundamental self. And as a consequence, I felt unlovable or unworthy, fundamentally at a core level, inadequate and not good enough. So it's not really surprising, therefore, that I chose a profession in which its ethos is to care for others, in particular, vulnerable others. And I found a home, I would say, that enabled the perpetuation of my self-protective strategy. Not only did social work function to address the need to care for others, but it also is a really demanding, pressurized, extremely busy working environment. And that is a perfect, albeit unhealthy way to avoid confronting my feelings. I have to admit that it also became my identity, a kind of idealized image of myself as self-sacrificing, hardworking individual within the care profession. And there is a slight reputation that, that I think child protection social work has about it being especially difficult that for some reason I found attractive. Dr. Karen Horney, a psychologist, wrote back in, wrote back in 1945 that a person builds up an idealized image of him or herself because she or he cannot tolerate him or herself as she or he actually is. And so becoming a social worker with this idealized, positive, socially acceptable image was a, s a substitute, I suppose, to compensate for the feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness that, that derived, derived as a result of my, my parents not being available in the way that I needed them to be. And I, so to kind of come to a, a conclusion about all of this, I would say that learning about my self-protective strategy was an incredibly agonizing process because I had to acknowledge all the painful feelings that I'd had up until then denied and inhibited 
And John Bowlby refers to this psychological process of denial and, and inhibition as defensive exclusion. And he wrote back in 1980, the information likely to be defensively excluded is of a kind that, when accepted for processing in the past, has led the person concerned to suffer more or less severely. So a, a, the question is, what information was I defensively excluding? For me, being rejected by my parents was psychologically intolerable. Feelings of shame, worthiness, and being unlovable were invoked and too much to bear. So I chucked myself off from those. And so I've had to recognize that my motivation for being a social worker wasn't simply reflection of my intrinsic goodness or my virtuous values, rather a convenient and acceptable, socially acceptable avenue to, to enact out my, my unconscious strategy. In fact, it was probably both, but, but on reflection, I have to, I have to admit that it was probably more the former, i.e. the strategy. But recognizing this has really enabled me to, to align my motivation much more with my consciously derived intentions and values. And introspective endeavor into my rationale and motivation for being a social worker, I would say has spanned over several years and is still an ongoing process. And such a process has facilitated psychological adjustment, but it's also given me insight, I would say, into the challenges for parents in achieving change, even when the benefits outweigh the negatives. In that sense, it has a big influence on my practice. Lisa Cherry, who does lots of brilliant work around trauma, wrote in a brilliant blog that you can only meet someone as deeply as you've met yourself. And this is an idea that parallels with Carl Jung's view that, and I'll quote him actually, because he'll, he'll say it better than I can paraphrase. The analyst must go on learning endlessly. We could say without too much exaggeration that a good half of every treatment consists of the doctor examining himself. For only what he can put right in, him, in himself can he hope to put right in the patient. That's the end of the quote. Now, obviously, he's coming from a psychotherapeutic context, and I'm not necessarily saying that the psychotherapeutic lens applies necessarily to social work, but I do think there's something about reflecting on our own experiences and the way that, that we've learned to cope and how those coping strategies, for better or worse, continue to influence our, our functioning and our relationships with other people. And if we give ourselves the opportunity to reflect on those experiences, it might give us insight into our motivation, but it also might aid us in understanding why some of the parents that we work with struggle to make some of the changes that they need to make. And, and part of that is that some of the, some of the ways that they're functioning currently that are causing them and their children difficulty are also the same ways that help them cope and survive with often a very difficult and adverse set of experiences in their childhood. And so 
they've developed these ways of coping and then they've embedded them psychologically. Often they become unconscious and then they get carried forward into adulthood without awareness. So I think when we truly understand our reasons for becoming social workers, we decrease the risk of our unconscious rationales unintentionally motivating our decision-making and our behavior and clearing ourselves of our personal pursuits allows us the freedom to change our relationship to our work that detangles us from the natural complexity of our past. So that's a overview of my work and what I'm doing and an introduction via a blog that I wrote about my decision to become a social worker. So thank you if you've made it all the way through this first episode. I'm really looking forward to exploring issues around undertaking assessments and doing direct work, dealing with conflict, and really getting to explore issues that I think will aid you as a frontline practitioner to do the, to do the work that you would like to be able to do. So many thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't already, then please consider subscribing or sharing with your colleagues. And I would love it if you leave a comment, positive or negative, or feedback is very welcome. And finally, if you have any topics you would like me to explore or anybody that you would like to speak to, please do get in touch.